Hello and welcome to Learning Machine, a podcast about the uncertain future of education in the 21st century. I'm Nathan Levin, here with my co-host Sam Scolacci. Today's episode is our season one finale, and we want to start out by saying thank you to all our listeners and guests. Making a podcast is more work than we could have imagined when we started, but the endless positive feedback and constructive criticism has made it all worthwhile. Today, we're going to review some of the ideas presented by our eight incredible guests from this season, and we're going to share a bit about what we have in store for season two. We also would love to hear from you what you thought of season one. We started this project as two educators with zero podcasting experience, and we've learned a ton along the way, but we still have so much further to go. Please take a moment and head to our website to give us some feedback and let us know what we can do to continue providing more content that you'll enjoy. Lastly, but certainly not leastly, we are excited today to introduce the newest member of the Learning Machine team, Raven DeRamus Byers. Raven is a brilliant education researcher, teacher, and writer. She is committed to finding ways of systemically leveraging politics and governance to support equitable opportunities for future generations. Raven, I know I speak for Sam, for both of us when I say we're so excited to have you on the team. Thanks, Nathan and Sam. Um, As you said, I'm Raven, everybody. I currently work at New America in the Education Policy Department, um, specializing in Grow Your Own Teachers and Teacher Diversity. I also help run a nonprofit education organization in my hometown of Gaston, Alabama, Um, but I'm based in Virginia. And you can find me online as well um, on Instagram at the notorious underscore RDB on TikTok at the Notorious RDB and on YouTube um, at the Lemonade Stand, where I read through books from the Beyonce Lemonade syllabus and then on Facebook and LinkedIn, Raven DeRamus Spires. I'm really excited to join the learning machine to have some riveting conversation with Nathan and Sam about these issues, um, but also to learn new things from some giants in the field. So thanks again to both of you for giving me that opportunity as your co-host. It's so good to have you here, Raven. Uh, And as always, support and inspiration for Learning Machine comes from our listeners. If you've got a minute and want to let us know what you think of our work, please visit our website at www.learningmachinepodcast.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. Okay, so here's the idea for today's episode. We're going to run back through all eight episodes from this season by reading a standout quote from that interview, from that guest. Uh, One of us is going to read the quote, and then we're going to force the other two of us into an agree or disagree position. Okay, just to get us talking about these ideas, teasing them out a little bit. Uh, Raven, Nathan, are you ready? Yes. Ready. All right, Nathan, you first with the quote. Okay, on episode one, Freddie DeBoer said, while absolute learning gains are possible... From the point of view of the system, it's remarkable how little children shift in the relative distribution over the course of their lives as students. Okay, I'm going to agree with this quote because the data backs it up. And that was one of the things that impressed me most about Freddie DeBoer's interview was this idea that that even though I don't like the idea that it's, it's difficult to close achievement gaps, that the data shows that it really is, that it's a major struggle and that many of the tools that we've tried to use to close those achievement gaps have not had the impact that we've wanted those things to have. And, and I think that's important to, to recognize. I would have to disagree just for um, 
the complexity, I guess, of the system. Um, I think this quote kind of simplifies maybe other types of learning gains like social emotional learning um, and then also differences in how data is collected and analyzed over time. And particularly during this pandemic, students have had learning gains, but that data on the whole wasn't collected as it usually is. Bree Dusso on episode two said, we've had a remarkable year and each of these events has pushed school systems to react. The opportunity is going to be completely dependent on how well districts and school leaders pivot out of a reactionary stance to a proactive one. Yes, this is the pandemic has had so many horrifying consequences, but school leaders now have a chance to take some of the lessons that they've learned, to take some of the massive funding that they're receiving from the federal government over the next four years, and to implement some practices that are revolutionary. And it's all going to depend on whether school leaders have the training and really are willing to take the risk to try out some of these new things that they've learned and implement those practices. Yeah, I hear you. But my issue with this quote is that it's it's a truism to say that it's better to be proactive than reactive. Like, of course, it's better to be proactive than reactive. All of us would like to be proactive as opposed to reactive when it comes to problems that are presented in our lives. But there's a there's a reason that school districts are sort of forced into the position of being reactive. And it's because school districts are often, you know, schools are tasked with this broad mission. We've talked a lot about this idea on this podcast that the, the mission of education is not totally clear and that what schools are asked to do is a really broad range of things is a really a really broad and wide mission uh, that schools are tasked with. And so it's it's not surprising that school districts are pushed to be reactive and not in a position to set up good proactive systems. Although, of course, I agree that if they if they could and they should, you know, that that's a good thing. But I think that a quote like this from a, a think tank like Serpy, it it doesn't acknowledge the fact that these school leaders and districts are put into a tough position. All right. So our next quote is Nia Dowell from episode three. Her quote was, conflict isn't bad for a team. In fact, it looks like it can be good. I agree. I argue this in my marriage all the time, Um, but healthy conflict is necessary for growth. You can't solve something by avoiding it. Okay. I appreciate the way you position that, Raven, because I do have to also agree that in my own relationship, my partner and I, you know, grow through conflict and strengthen our relationship through conflict. It's when you're in conflict that you're really talking about the challenging issues. But since I am tasked with disagreeing with this quote, I would also say that in the classroom, I have definitely seen students who are in groups that are stonewalled, you know, and and stuck in conflict and are unable to actually get to the point of becoming functional performing teams who are doing real authentic learning because they're too busy fighting with each other. So I think that there's, you know, sort of a caveat here that teachers need to be equipped with the skills to help resolve that conflict if it becomes too conflictual. I don't know if that's actually a word, but we're going to go with it. On episode four, Renee Kazilchich said, 
educational technology in the past has tended not to close achievement gaps, but instead to keep them constant or in some cases even widen them. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are a few reasons why I agree with this quote from Renee. I mean, first of all, when you think about educational technology, you think about who has had access to it over the years. Uh, the uh, students in the school districts that have had access to the best educational technology and opportunities with educational technology are often the ones that already had the support that they needed. Uh, but also there's this fear that as we use uh, technology tools to assess students and diagnose students and place students in different uh, uh courses or, or determine where they belong inside of schools, that we're going to end up uh, uh, locking students into particular pathways um, that uh, uh, just keep the gaps where they already are. I have to disagree. Um, during the pandemic, kids without that technology didn't have access to education at all, let alone to even be able to participate in the widening or closing of those achievement gaps. On episode five, Tim Truitt said, a high quality task implemented poorly still had a bigger impact than a lower quality task implemented well in terms of student learning and student outcomes. Yes, this is particularly true in a math and science classroom where there is this ladder of content where if you're missing some of the rungs on the first few steps of that ladder, giving students a task that's way up this ladder of competency is just going to end up making them feel inadequate and turned off by the subject matter. I mean, this is definitely a topic that I think is really interesting. We hit on the idea of the problem of remediation uh, throughout the series. And so I do want to agree with what a lot of Nathan is saying, but I'm going to take issue with this quote because by saying that a high quality task implemented poorly is better than a low quality task implemented well, you could, you could, you know, uh, tease that out to say, well, we just need high quality tasks and it doesn't matter how good the teachers are. We could just essentially have a robot teaching the class. Uh, and, and even if you've got an expert teacher, it doesn't matter, you know, they don't, it doesn't really matter because if they're teaching low quality stuff, that's not important. But if you really think about the student experience in the classroom, the quality of the human being in front of them in a lot of cases does have a massive impact on their experience. So I do really like Tim Truett and think all of his, his points were really, really good, but that's the issue I'm going to take. All right. Our next episode, uh, was with Kevin Carey and his quote was this. He said, there's a sense of identity from the millennial gen generation forward that is, I got ripped off. People before me, my parents, they got to do this, but I had to take out these massive student loans, and that's bullshit. <laughs> I love that quote. I do agree with this to an extent. Um, as a millennial woman of color, I am. I recognize that I am privileged to have been able to pay loans to access schools previous generations couldn't without being spat on, arrested, or beaten. However, um, I don't like that previous generations criticize millennials' attitudes and how we navigate society without taking responsibility for the way they've set up or maintained those barriers. Wow. Yeah, I, I do agree with that point and think that there is a real... All right. So the next episode was episode six with Kevin Carey. 
Um, Kevin said, there's a sense of identity from the millennial generation forward that is, I got ripped off. People before me, my parents, they got to do this, but I had to take out these massive student loans. And that's bullshit. I do agree with this quote to an extent. As a millennial woman of color, I definitely recognize that I'm privileged to have been able to pay loans to access schools that previous generations couldn't without being spat on, beaten, or arrested. However, I don't like that previous generations criticize our attitudes and how millennials navigate society without taking responsibility for the way they've set up or maintained those barriers. Yeah, I have a hard time disagreeing with this. I think those are really important points, Raven. And I agree with this to a certain extent. I guess I will take the angle that it's hard for me to agree that the millennial generation in any way has been ripped off because as a millennial myself, I look around at the world that we have and think that, oh gosh, now I'm thinking about climate change and no, we have, we, we are completely ripped off. We have inherited a burning, <laughs> unfair, um, polluted ball of rock that, that frankly, we're, we're just going to have to grapple with. So double agree on this one. Karen Wu, on episode seven, said, The unknown is coming. Education will prepare our next generation to be able to handle the unknown. Ugh, such a good quote. I, I love this quote, Nathan. It's not quite as profound coming from you as it was from Karen, but uh, still pretty impressive. I just, I, I like this idea because I like thinking about education in this big, large societal way that there are big challenges coming down the pike toward humanity and we're going to have to confront them. And education is a tool that we can leverage to help society and, and to help us all prepare to make sure that we're, we're able to still protect people and make sure that people are able to live uh, a good life. So I, I, I from this very um, generalized perspective, I, I like this idea. I wish that I could agree with this quote, but I can't because I'm not terribly confident that our leaders are handling the educational inequities we're seeing in a way that is building strong future citizens who can handle the unknown. Bailey Cato Zuprik in the TNTP episode said, we have an educational system that was built for a certain kind of person. Absolutely. And this calls to mind, you know, one of my favorite quotes about education, which is the contrast between John Dewey, who said that education is not preparation for life, it is life itself. And then, of course, Horace Mann, who said that education is the great equalizer. And I am gonna, probably going to be Dewey in till the day I die, because I really think that education doesn't necessarily equalize, it just reinforces the system that we already have, right? It is a opportunity to create the society of the future. But up to this point, education as a system has historically and currently been built to maintain a system of power in which privilege and access are given to white, wealthy men. Um, of course, I get to disagree on this one. I'm not really going to be able to disagree with the substance of Nathan's point. I do agree with that. Uh, completely. <laughs> but the way that I'm going to try to 
uh, disagree with this quote is just to say that um, we have an educational system that is supposed to be built for everybody. And so even though the long history of education, not just in this country, but especially in this country, uh, and, and most relevantly in this country, um, that has been built for uh, white men and also previously, you know, landowners and, and also the uh, elite and wealthy. Um, the education system is supposed to serve everybody. And so even as we acknowledge all of the broken issues inside of the education system, I think it's important at least to keep our eye on the idea that the goal is to create an education system that is built for everybody. In season two of Learning Machine Podcast, we're going to be narrowing the focus of our interviews and taking on one of the most incendiary issues facing education today. We're going to be talking about critical race theory and culturally relevant teaching. Two related topics, both happen to be abbreviated as CRT. We're going to be asking questions like, what is critical race theory? What is the history of critical race theory? What does data say about CRT in the classroom in terms of the prevalence of it and the effect? We're also going to be asking, what are the politics of CRT in the classroom? And what is the obligation of a school or a district or a school system to teach about the history of racism and oppression in the United States? Also, we'll be discussing what is culturally responsive teaching? How is it related to critical race theory? What does CRT look like in the classroom? How are teachers using CRT and how should teachers be using it? We're hoping to incorporate teacher voices in our episodes this season as well. So if you're a teacher or you know a teacher who would be willing to share their thoughts and experiences on the podcast, send us an email at learningmachine0101 at gmail.com. As we prepare for season two, we're going to take some time off. We will periodically be releasing some extra content from our interviews in season one, but we won't have any new guests until October 15th. We know this is a long break, but we just want to make sure we have time and space to continue improving the quality of the podcast. This week, your homework is to head to our website, www.learningmachinepodcast.com, and fill out the Series 1 survey. It'll take less than five minutes, and there's a surprise for completing the survey. It's stickers. It has been our honor and privilege to share in these important conversations about the future of education. To all those who teach, listen, and learn, take care and see you soon.